This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our time of study in God's word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are so grateful for your word, for your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Apart from your word, we would be left adrift in a stormy sea in the darkest of night with no indication of what was around us or how to understand uh, what we were going through. Uh, Your word gives us that orientation to reality. It is your word that teaches us not only who you are, but how, why you created us, how you created us, and what our purpose is in this life. And Father, we can only experience the joy and the peace and the real happiness that you have for us as a byproduct of our walk with you on the basis of your created reality. When we violate that, when we strike out on our own, that is when we experience chaos and suffering and all of the different traumas that come into life simply because of our own willfulness, our own unwillingness to submit to your authority. Fathers, we study your word today and continue our study on what you have to teach about marriage We pray that you would help us to understand the things that we study, to put these things together, to recognize that this is not human opinion but divine instruction, that we might have a a truly fulfilled life of ministry and service uh, starting individually and then within our marriages and our families and on that strong foundation then have the impact that you have called us to have in the world around us. We pray that you would guide and direct our thinking This morning we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. Uh, You don't need to turn there right away. We will not spend a lot of time there this morning because I believe that in order to understand what is being said here by the Apostle Paul, we really have to set it in a broader context. And that context isn't simply the context of the epistle to the Colossians or even the context of what Paul has written because when it comes to what Paul says about marriage, there are, as the Apostle Peter stated in 
Second uh, Peter, there are things that are very difficult for contemporary Americans and many contemporary Christians to comprehend because it runs so counter to the message of our culture. In fact, the message of our culture has been so um, so brought into the church that in di- discussing many of these uh, passages with many Christians, not necessarily those in this congregation, but many uh, in the broader spectrum of Christianity, uh, they come to the Apostle Paul's teaching on this uh, from the vantage point that Paul is just repeating uh, the, his culturally bound ideas that were influenced by either they'll claim rabbinic theology or the culture of his time or his own uh, misogynism, whatever it might be. There are many ways that they are many excuses they use to discredit what Paul says. The reality is that Paul's, what Paul says about marriage, about the roles and responsibilities of men and husbands and fathers, and w- women and wives and mothers, is not anything new. It is part of the broad context of what God has revealed beginning in Genesis chapter 1. And so I believe it's important for us to understand what God, God's original intent was in creating human beings as male and female and what that implies because the very fact that God emphasizes this male and female distinction in the very first chapter of the Old Testament in the chapter on creation indicates that there is a distinction between what it means to be a male, a man, and what it means to be a female, a woman, that there is an emphasis in Scripture on biblical manhood and biblical womanhood or biblical masculinity and feminine and, and femininity. And so we need to understand that in the context of the Scripture. Now, the unfortunate thing is that there are certain cultural ideas that have been picked up through the last uh, 1,000, 2,000 years that have been picked up from the culture, not from the Scripture, that have been assimilated to certain uh, biblical, to biblical teaching. And so when we come to certain ideas, certain issues, certain ways in which are we understand the concepts of masculinity and femininity, we need to make sure that we are not adding culturally based ideas to biblically revealed ideas. And unfortunately, because these have been wedded together in the minds or in tradition, not biblical, but in tradition, uh, often things that were wrong, unjust, unfair, distorted, uh, in one tra- in in the tradition uh, that wasn't biblical has often been thrown out, and the biblical teachings been thrown out as well. So we just need to kind of clear the air and see, start at the beginning, and see what the scripture uh, does indeed teach. And the scripture clearly teaches that God has a distinction in role for men and women. And I don't know how you hear that. Because the message of our culture that has been um, voiced over the airwaves by the media 
and by the proponents of social change for the last 50 years is that um, equality means no role distinction. And that message has been repeated and repeated and repeated to the point that that even if at one level we don't agree with it, we've heard it so much that it's become part of the overall thinking of, of our culture, and it, it has had a, a drastic impact on the way Christian men and women think about who they are as men and women and who they are in their relationship together in marriage. And if we're going to get rid of the negatives that are there that are truly destructive to a healthy marriage, to a biblically grounded marriage, then we have to lay this groundwork very carefully as we go through Scripture because on the one hand we have to understand what the Scripture teaches, but we also have to uh, surgically remove uh, a, a number of misconceptions that we all have about what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman because I would suggest from what Scripture teaches, if we don't, as men and women, don't first understand who we are as men and women, then when we come together in a marriage, then we will not be able to properly relate to one another within that marriage, and there will be tension and conflict and difficulty uh, within that marriage. And when we as Christians come into a marriage where our thinking is still so influenced by the world around us, the thinking of Satan's cosmic system, and we bring that with us, and we all do that. We bring a certain amount of that uh, carnal uh, cosmic baggage with us into any any relationship, any marriage, that to the, the, the degree that we do not uh, face it, deal with it, and remove it, uh, we're going to continue to experience the kind of conflicts and problems that we have. It's interesting that if you look back over the last 50 years, as we've had the rise of the uh, feminist movement, the women's liberation movement, with all of the emphasis that has been there, in some cases justified, in other cases not justified, on women uh, realizing their uh, <clears throat> appropriate equality with, with, uh, with men in society, something else has increased. And the, that which has also increased has been an increase in uh, abuse, not that abuse didn't exist before that, I'm not saying that, but there has been a, a tremendous increase in abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, uh, sexual abuse. There has been an, an increasing, a radically increasing rate of divorce uh, inside and outside the church. Studies indicate today that the divorce rate among Christians is no different from the divorce rate among those who are outside the church. And what that indicates is that those who are Christians who claim to be uh, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and dedicated to God's word have no clear of an idea how to apply God's word in terms of their marriage than an unbeliever does. And they, they use this and operate on the same principle and ideas uh, within their marriage that, that unbelievers do, which means that we have uh, marriages based on cosmic thinking rather than the clear teaching of Scripture. 
And one of these issues that we come to is this whole issue that, that underlies everything that Paul says. And we're going to look at some different passages in the coming weeks. The passage I read this morning in Ephesians 5, uh, 18 down through 6, 4 is an expansion on the verses that we have in Colossians 3, 18 and following. But the underlying focus there, the underlying doctrine, is the doctrine of authority. And authority must always be understood in relation to humility, and it must be understood in relation to uh, leadership. And whenever we talk about this idea of authority, we also have to talk about the way authority has been uh, corrupted by the entrance of sin into the world. And so this is why we go back to Genesis chapter 1. Uh, to understand this. Last time I made the uh, point that the purpose of marriage is not so you can be happy. That runs counter to a lot of modern thinking. We think, oh, I need to be married so that I can be happy. Like everything else in the Christian life, happiness and joy is a byproduct of our consistent walk with God. It is not the goal. The goal is to glorify God. And when we glorify God, we can have tremendous joy in our life no matter what the external circumstances might be. Whether we are like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and being dragged into a fiery furnace, whether we are like a Daniel who is being thrown into a lion's den, or whether we are living in a culture that honors and respects uh, Christianity, the joy and the peace and the tranquility that a believer experience is the same because it's not related to those circumstances. It's related to the walk with the Lord. And so foundational to having a, a truly biblical marriage and experiencing what God would have us to experience in the context of a marriage ultimately comes down to the spiritual life of each individual uh, within that marriage. It is often said, and it is true, that it only takes it takes two people to make a marriage work. It only takes one person to make a marriage not work. And that is true in many different areas of life. One person operating in selfishness and self-absorption, giving rain to, not, not giving rein to their sin nature, but being undisciplined in relation to their own self-centeredness is all it takes to destroy, uh, to destroy a marriage. Whenever we come together in a marriage as a man and a woman in post-Genesis 3 fallen, the fallen world, we always have to deal with the fact that there are two sin natures that now have to live together. And the, the battle cry of everyone's sin nature is me first, not you. And when you live in that kind of a, an environment, there are always going to be conflicts. But the scripture says there's only one way to truly overcome that, and that is within the spiritual life. That's why in both Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5, the, the strong passages related to marriage and the roles and responsibilities of husbands and wives are given as a result of either the filling by means of the Spirit in Ephesians 5.18 are letting the word of Christ richly dwell within you. If those two things, which work together, if those two things, the walk by the Spirit, the filling by means of the Spirit, 
and, and letting the word of Christ dwell within us. And it is the word of Christ that the Spirit fills us with. If that's not there first, then what comes after that can't truly be applied or implemented. And what underlies this, as I pointed out last time, is the idea, this whole idea of authority orientation and thus uh, humility. And it comes down to an understanding of the fact that in authority relationships, when one person is placed under the authority of another person, that does not imply inequality at all. But that is the battle cry uh, that, uh, of radical feminism and has been the battle cry of radical feminism since the early, early 60s. And that is completely fraudulent. So we have to address that because in some ways that has affected every one of us. That is why I've titled this Equal in Person and Distinct in Role that before God we are all equal in terms of who we are as individuals. There is none of us that is inherently superior to anyone else. And yet God has distinguished uh, these, these roles. Let me just review for you our passage in Colossians. The primary command is given in Colossians 3.16 to let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with the result that you are teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, uh, in all wisdom, rather, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, by singing with grace or gratitude in your hearts to the Lord. And then the next statement, whatever you do, all that you do, and that covers everything in life, all that you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father, through him. This is followed by four verses. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting or proper in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they uh, be discouraged. And then the next verses go on and address this issue of authority in relationship to the role of masters and servants. But I'm not going to uh, read over that uh, this morning. So I pointed out in the introduction last time, marriage is in a crisis in Western civilization. It's in the crisis of the rest of the world as well. But the rest of the world does not have the foundation of Christianity. Now, the rest of the world those civilizations that are grounded upon non-Christian religions, whether it's the Hinduism in India, Buddhism, Confucianism, whatever, uh, now atheistic communism in China, uh, or animism, spiritism, idolatry, or whatever the mix is in Africa, there was, there's a recognition in all cultures of the institution of marriage. It's not marriage is not something that um, I'm not saying that marriage is something that was started in all cultures. It's not a product of evolution, the scripture says, but that this is an institution God created, ordained, established from the very beginning of creation before there was any sin in the world. So therefore, marriage was not created for the purpose of dealing with sin problems. 
We've studied the divine institutions in the past. There are five divine institutions. A divine institution uh, may not be a term familiar to many of you, but it is simply an institution, something God established. Uh, These are social laws, as you might have it, that God built into the framework of his creation, not just physical laws like the law of gravity or the laws of thermodynamics or other physical laws, but these are laws that are built built into the social fabric of the human race. And when we think about that, we do so because we recognize that, that as I pointed out last time in looking at Genesis 1, 26 to 28, God created us in his image and in his likeness. That means that human beings as human beings, even though we are finite, we are a finite representation of God. Now, there are other aspects and dimensions to the application of this verse, but that is what I'm focusing on right now. There is a, and one of the things we see in the biblical view of God is that God is not a unitary being. By that I mean he is not a singular unitary unity in the sense that Unitarian theology would teach, in the sense that Islamic theology would teach, or in the sense that post-Christian rabbinic Judaism would teach, where you have a solitary God uh, that does not exist as multiple persons. Only within biblical teaching do we have a Trinitarian concept. Now, that's what I want to talk about this morning. That concept of the Trinity is a doctrine that has profound implications in many ways. And I would suggest that most of us uh, have not heard too many messages on the Trinity, especially in terms of its implications, especially if your background uh, relates to um, many mainstream uh, Christian denominations. And that is because many of the concepts related to the Trinity came under attack within the mainstream denominations in the late 18th century and through most of the 19th century. And so there is very little that has been uh, written or developed in the 20th century in terms of our understanding of the implications of the doctrine of the Trinity. There are some good things done by conservatives, but when you're talking about mainstream Christianity that has rejected the ultimate authority of God, then you you don't run into a lot of thought or a lot of development uh, in these particular areas. God is a trinity. This means that for eternity there has been a society. A society is the interaction of a group of persons. And so that the Trinity itself is a social entity. There is the Father, there is the Son, and there is the Holy Spirit. The Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit loves the Father and the Son. There is a a social integration there between these three persons. And so God in Christianity is essentially social. By contrast, a Unitarian God, as you have in Islam or you have in Unitarian theology or post-Christian rabbinic theology, is a God who exists as one person in isolation for all eternity. 
How can he have a social dimension if for all of eternity there is no one, no being with whom to associate, uh, with whom to love? This is why the very core of, of Unitarian theology is the fundamental problem of saying that God is love when there is no one to love. If the God of Islam is a God of love, which he is not, and one of the ways that you demonstrate that is that the word love is never applied to Allah anywhere in the Quran. In fact, the word love is only used once or twice in the Quran, and that is in relation to loving things within the world. You know, love not this or that, things of that nature. It's never applied to God, never applied to Allah, let me say. And Allah is not the same as the God of, of uh, Abraham, Isaac, Isaac, and Jacob. So you have a singular entity who has no relationship. Well, if you're left with two options logically. If he is a God of love, then he has to create in order to fulfill his need to love someone. That makes him dependent. By definition, a God is independent. A deity is independent, not dependent. So either you have a God who is love with no one to love, which means he is dependent upon a creatures to, to love them, or he is really not truly love. Whereas the God of Christianity existing as a triune being is a God of love. And so there is a social dimension there, uh, society, and there are aspects of that society that have existed throughout all of eternity that are reflected in his creatures, human beings who are created in his image and likeness. That means that we can learn something about this original creation of man prior to sin by looking at the person of God. So since we've taken God out of our culture, one political party almost took God completely out of its platform, Uh, we recognize that by removing God from our thinking, we have no frame of reference to really understand many, many of these things. And this is why marriage, as well as many other aspects of culture, uh, are in collapse. Last time I also pointed out that uh, the, the belief today is that everything we have is simply by accident. It's all the product of time plus chance in terms of evolution so that marriage becomes a pragmatic institution invented by human beings over time in order to uh, establish some sort of social, uh, social stability. Today, in terms of the arrogance of modern, contemporary Western civilization, that idea has been rejected. Last time I pointed out that that we're redefining marriage in our culture. There's a lot of implications to that that we'll address as we go through this. And we're wrestling with this whole issue of same-sex marriage. And once you redefine marriage, where do you stop? That's part of the problem. Uh, if, if marriage is no longer between one man and one woman, if mar- why, why must, and it can be between one man and one man or one woman and one woman, why stop with one and one? Why not have polygamy? Why not have uh, uh, children? Uh, why not have bestiality? Uh, where do you stop? 
once you start changing the definition. Uh, in fact, last time, as I mentioned that, uh, one individual who, here in the congregation who spends a lot of time working in Norway has had a lot of conversations with young Norwegian men, and they've informed him that marriage is an American institution. So we, we, we live in a culture today that's basically rejected any of these eternal established, uh, established truths. We live in a culture that where there were certain cultural elites who set out to change the very structure of society. I've mentioned, mentioned last time uh, Betty Friedan, who was one of the uh, foremost leaders and thinkers and influential people within the radical feminist movement coming out of the 60s. And she made an interesting statement in 1970 on uh, observance of uh, Women's Liberation Conference. She said, uh, presciently, I think that the great debate of the 1970s will be, is God he? And that has been uh, a story of the debate within the last uh, 40 years. We have seen Bible translations come out that have uh, adopted a gender-neutral view. Some have talked about have words where they change the pronouns around, or they have he slash she, or they refer to God as a she. We have to come to understand some of the implications of these things because if man is created in the image of God, we have to understand the nature of God, the nature of God. And the fundamental aspect of God as presented in Scripture is that God is not like his creatures. We may be in the image of God, but God is not in the image of man. God is the creator. We are creatures. There is a radical distinction between human beings and God. Human beings have sexual or gender distinctions that were created by God. They don't, uh, they are not categories, therefore they can be applied to God but you will find many people trying to make this kind of an argument. Um, we have to understand that the scriptures use and the language uses gender identification. Now, this is one of those funny things that, that people uh, lose sight of is that gender and language really doesn't have anything to do with the uh, sex of an object. For example, in, in, in English really doesn't have gender uh, gender-associated nouns. We, we, we're not an inflected language like that, but in German, uh, the word Fräulein for a young woman is a neuter. Our, uh, Fräulein is, is feminine and Mädchen is, is neuter. But uh, they don't relate. They're both talking about a, a young woman. Uh, you look at a window in German. Uh, Die Fenster is a window. It's feminine. Windows are not masculine or feminine. This is gender is a uh, grammatical category to simply identify three different classifications of nouns. We've called them since uh, the time of the ancient Greeks. We've identified them as masculine, feminine, and neuter, but they don't have anything to do with the sexual identity of these particular things. So when you look at um, 
gender-inflected languages such as the Scripture, uh, it does not necessarily mean that when God is referred to by a masculine pronoun that that means God is a male. It doesn't mean that when the Holy Spirit is referred to by a feminine noun, ruach in the Hebrew, that the Holy Spirit is feminine. It doesn't mean that when uh, the Holy Spirit is referred to by a neuter noun in the uh, New Testament in Greek, uh, that pneuma means that the Holy Spirit is somehow uh, neuter. There are some indications that gender does play a role. For example, in normal grammar, a masculine or a neuter noun has to be referred to by a neuter pronoun. The Holy Spirit is not referred to uh, usually by a neuter pronoun but by a masculine pronoun, which is significant because it, the implication is that the Holy Spirit is a person. That's one of the arguments for the personhood of the Holy Spirit. But you have a lot of different aspects of masculinity as well as femininity applied to God. But God is never identified as a man or as a woman. He is God. There are words for God such as Elohim, titles such as El Shaddai, names such as Yahweh and Adonai that are masculine. Uh, his titles, titles, words such as Lord, King, Prince, and Father are all masculine, whereas I've just pointed out the word for spirit in the Hebrew is feminine. Um, the grammar is less significant than how God is represented. When God reveals himself, he reveals himself as a male. Does that mean that God is a male? No, because that's applying a creaturely category to God. God reveals himself as a male because within his creation, he has designated the male, the role of the, uh, of the male as the leader. And so God is represented, represents himself as a male because he is in the position of overall authority and leadership. And so he adapts when he takes on the form of a man, he adapts to that form within uh, within creation when he takes on that form. That is why he came in the form of a man in terms of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Uh, you will often hear people who are trying to prove the femininity of God uh, emphasizing certain illustrations in Scripture, such as the Spirit uh, hovering over the earth, over the dark, the earth was in darkness and without form and void in Genesis 1-2, and the Spirit hovered over the earth. The verb there for hovering is the word of a mother hen uh, wrapping her wings around her eggs for protection. It is a, it, it's using the illustration of the actions of a mother, but it is not claiming that the Holy Spirit is a mother. In Isaiah 66, 12 and 13, uh, God says that he comforts Israel like a mother comforts her children. But that is not saying that God is a mother. It is simply making an analogy on the basis of the idea of comfort. In Isaiah 46, 3 through 4, God says that he uh, it refers to God giving birth to his people. Again, we're using a feminine analogy but it does not mean that God is a woman. It is simply illustrating the uh, principle of origination uh, that way. These are nothing more than uh, 
analogies. Uh, we might make it clear when we say that Paul, Paul described himself and his care for those in the congregations to whom he ministered. He compared himself to, as a mother begetting and caring for his people. Yet we wouldn't say that the Apostle Paul was claiming to be a woman. That's not how language is used, but this is often what, what we find today is this distortion of, of language and why language is very important. Now, when God created, Genesis 1, 26 says that, um, let's look at 28, uh, excuse me, verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. The word there for man in the first line refers to mankind or human beings. Now, now we've played this funny gender-neutral game in, in books today where you'll find uh, publishers saying you have to be gender-neutral. So we're going to say, so God created humankind. The reason that, that, that we always use the term mankind is, is not out of some kind of male chauvinism. It is because the first human being created was a male. It was Adam. And so everyone comes out of the man. This is why you have the arguments that Paul has in Romans chapter 5 related to uh, the original Adam as the first Adam and Jesus as the second Adam. It, once you start attacking these notions of gender, and making and 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 role uh, destroying role distinctions, you, you really end up eviscerating the basic doctrines of Christianity, uh, Christology, and salvation. God created man. He created the human race. He created mankind in His own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So male and female both are created in the image of God. That means in terms of their personhood, in terms of their being, in terms of their ontology, they are equal before God. There is not one that is more or superior uh, to the other. And they're given a single task, be fruitful and multiply, God said to them, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. So there's a joint task. But in Genesis chapter 2, we see this develop in a little more detail. First, God created Adam. He created him from the dust, the, the soil, the chemicals of the soil. And then from his side, he creates Isha, the woman. And he creates her from Adam to show this, this unity of being. They are of one substance. The woman comes out from the side of the man. There is a unity there, but it also emphasizes the role distinction of the woman. As I pointed out last time, the woman is created to be a helper to the man. In modern feminist thinking... The role of being a helper indicates slavery, lesser significance. The idea of subordination indicates that you are not as important or significant. A helper, a servant, an assistant is someone who is of lesser significance and importance than the person they are helping. 
That is not a biblical idea. Jesus came to serve. He is the God of the universe, and the one of the primary pictures we have of Jesus in the New Testament is that he is a servant. Leadership is presented in the New Testament as primarily a concept of being a servant to others. So this is emphasized. God himself is the only other being who is consistently referred to as a servant, as a helper. There's a theological implication. If you say to be a helper, an assistant, is somehow of lesser significance, then you have just blasphemed the essence and character of God. So you see, what I'm point, one thing I'm pointing out here is that embedded within the very thinking of the feminist movement and this concept of, of role identification and equality and and the, the, the idea that subordination is somehow means less equal is a concept that if applied to God is of the greatest blasphemy one can commit. It is essentially a theological error and heresy because of its underlying assumption. But you don't get people, nobody ever talks about those things. It's too heavy. Well, you don't see a lot of people coming to church on a Sunday morning where you're going to be taught the word and how to think like this. Scripture teaches that God is one. There is this multiplicity of personhood in God. And this is important for us to understand. In Deuteronomy 6.4, Israel is given the Shema. By the way, tonight is Arab Rosh Hashanah, which is uh, the new year. The greeting for, for a Jewish person is Shana Tavah. And this is the beginning of the new year, the beginning of the High Holy Days, which conclude with uh, Yom Kippur, which is a week from Tuesday night that evening and on Wednesday ending at sundown a week from Wednesday. Hear, O Israel, Shema, O Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. That last word, Echad, has been understood by in rabbinical thought for, for centuries and has been interpreted in a way that's hostile to Christianity to mean a singularity. And yet it's very simple to show that Scripture demonstrates it's, that's not the core meaning. In Genesis chapter 2, at the end of Genesis 2, God said um, it's good for a uh, man to leave father and mother and the two are to cleave together as one flesh, echad. It is two in one. There's a recognition of multiplicity within the unity. In fact, the context of Deuteronomy 6.4 makes it very clear that what is being emphasized here is not the singularity of God, but that God is exclusively and only God. It is in contrast to and contextually to the idolatry of those nations around him. We see a similar use in 1 Chronicles uh, 29.1. Same word is used here. Furthermore, King David said to all the assembly, my son Solomon, whom alone God has chosen. See, it is showing a distinction there between Solomon and everybody else. It's the same word. So that the word there that we find in Deuteronomy 6.4 is a word that emphasizes uh, the exclusivity of God. He alone is God uh, it's not talking about his singularity. The Old Testament clearly teaches that there's multiplicity within the Godhead. 
For example, Isaiah 48, 12 and following. Now, there are many passages that I can go to to demonstrate this. I just wanted to go to one this morning. Um, God is speaking. And in Isaiah 48, 12, he says, Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel my called. I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. So the person who is speaking here is clearly uh, Adonai, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Verse 13, Indeed, my hand has laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand has stretched out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand up together. Who's the speaker? It's God. Verse 14, All of you, assemble yourselves and hear. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He shall do his pleasure on Babylon, and his arm shall be against the uh, Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken. Yes, I have called him. I have brought him, and his way uh, will prosper. God is still speaking here, and he is speaking of his servant. In verse 16, we read, Come near to me, hear this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. From the time that it was, I was there. God is speaking there. And he says, he says, and now, oh, no, and here there's a, excuse me, there's a change in person from the one who is speaking up through verse 14 to another. It's a subtle shift in verse, uh, four, verse 15. I even I have spoken. Yes, I have called him. I brought him and his way will prosper. And this new personage is speaking, verse 16, and says, come near to me and hear this. I've not spoken in secret from the beginning, from the time that it was. I was there, and now the Lord God, that's God the Father, and his spirit, that's a distinct personage, that's the Holy Spirit, have sent me. And who is the one who is sent from the Father? That is the Son. So here you have three distinct personages, divine personages, mentioned in Isaiah 48, 16. In the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 8, 6, we read, There is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and from whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But you see, there is a subordination there that is the point I'm making, is that within the Trinity, where the Father is fully God, the Son is fully God, the Holy Spirit is fully God, they are equal but there are role distinctions. So to say that role distinction equals inequality is an attack on the Trinity. And you may not have recognized that before, but more astute theologians have. In fact, I read of one, learned of one evangelical denomination, large evangelical denomination, that in the mid-90s, changed their doctrinal statement related to their view of Christ and took the subordination of Christ, which has been held by every denomination, every viewpoint, everyone since, since the 4th century, uh, early 5th century, excuse me, uh, early 4th century, 325 at the Council of Nicaea, that, that the, the Son is equal to the Father but subordinate to Him in authority, that, that every, every theologian just about, up until uh, just the late 20th century, has recognized the subordination of the Son to the Father, but that he's equal in identity. doesn't matter whether you're Catholic, Roman Catholic or Protestant, whether you're Calvinist or Arminian, charismatic, non-charismatic, dispensational, non-dispensational, it doesn't matter. 
Almost every theology, the ones that didn't were considered heretics, almost every theology written up until the late 20th century understood this. But you had a couple of different denominations in the 1990s take subordination out of their doctrinal beliefs because this would mean that women somehow, this would imply that women somehow were to be under the authority of men. They understood that implication. Jesus Christ is eternally the Son of God. The term son and the term father are utilitarian terms that God chose to describe their relationship so that we would understand a role distinction and an authority distinction. But yet the father and the son are identical in essence. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn. See, the father sent the son. Galatians 4.4, God sent his son. There's an authority relationship there. There's also an, an implied delegated authority in terms of creation, John 1.3 and Colossians 1.16. But even within that, that subordination, there's a recognition of specific authority uh, distinctions that go along with it, but not a denial of equality. Colossians 1.18 says that he, referring to Jesus, is the head of the body, the church who is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. This same terminology is used in 1 Corinthians 11.3. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. A number of years ago, my friend Wayne House, who is a former president of the Evangelical Theological Society, been a professor of theology at a number of schools, written I don't know how many books. When I first met Wayne, when he was about 35 years old, he had probably written 20 books at that point, and since then he's written probably three times that many, was, uh, is also a lawyer and was debating a well-known Christian feminist, uh, evangelical feminist at a Presbyterian school in uh, Washington State. And she tried to make the claim that headship simply referred to origin, uh, origination. And Wayne reaches in his... Computers had just come out at that time, and he reached in his briefcase and pulled out a like a ream of paper and said, I have a printout of every use of the, of the Greek word kephale in ancient Greek literature. Would you please give me one example of where kephale ever means origin in this kind of a context? And of course, she couldn't do it for two reasons. Number one, it doesn't exist, and number two, she didn't know Greek. It is clear that this term refers to authority, not to origination, that God has an authority structure. Any relationship, any society, any group of people has to have some sort of organization, some sort of structure, and some sort of purpose. Somebody's the designated leader, and somebody's the designated doers and followers. How that is manifested is the issue, not the existence of that authority uh, structure. Jesus clearly indicated he was under the authority of the Father. John 5.19, he said the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. He's under the authority of the Father, but yet in John 10.30, he says, I and the Father are one. Now, we have the existence of God, 
Scripture teaches he exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that each person, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, is equally divine. But the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father. There are three distinct persons. They're one in essence and equality, but they are distinct persons. And within that distinction of their personhood, there's an authority relationship. The Father sent the Son. The Father and the Son sent the Spirit. There's an authority structure. What we have to understand is how that authority works. Because after Genesis 3 and the introduction of sin, authority really gets corrupted. And it's because of that corruption we have the problem. But the problem isn't authority. The problem is how we distort authority. And we have to come back and recognize that there is a perfect environment wherein authority exists. And only through redemption and sanctification can we begin to turn back the consequences of that sinful corruption. And that's how we can understand how marriage is supposed to work, and we will pick up with that next time. Father, we're so thankful for this time together this morning, for the opportunity to get into your word, to think about these things, to reflect upon who we are as creatures in your image, that we are to reflect you. And that is not just a moral concept. It is in terms of every aspect of your being. And this certainly impacts our relationships with one another in many different dimensions, but especially in the realm of marriage. This is very difficult for many people at different times because we run into conflicts because of what we want versus what somebody else wants. And whether that's in a situation of schooling, academics, on the job, or in the home, we have to learn to be humble to submit ourselves to the authority, the leadership of the designated leader, the one in authority. And we have to learn um, how we are to deal with our own sinfulness and our own self-centeredness. That can only happen first and foremost through salvation. We have to become a new creature in Christ, and that only occurs by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. He is the one who was sent to die on the cross for our sins, And only by having that payment applied to us individually through faith can we become a new creature in Christ and see the foundation for the change that comes only through spiritual growth. Father, I pray that there's anyone here this morning that's never trusted in Christ as Savior, never come to understand the grace dimension of the gospel, that you have done it all and we simply accept it, we simply believe it, and on that basis we have eternal life. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Nothing else matters. It's what are you trusting in for salvation? The instant we trust in Christ, everything changes. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who has never trusted in Christ as Savior, they would take this opportunity to do so. Father, we pray for the rest of us who are believers that we might be challenged in our thinking by what we've studied today and that we might determine that we want to have uh, marriages and families that honor and glorify you 
And that begins with the overhaul of understanding who we are as individuals, an overhaul of our spiritual life, and in turn an overhaul of how we relate to one another uh, within the home. And this can only be done as we walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.